The seasonal travels to an exciting location for a job with a time limit in order to find something that they think is going to better themselves. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. for our first Moroccan episode. Before I start and introduce my guest, I want to say I got an email, or I guess we, the seasonals, got an email from a guy named Stefan recently who had heard of our podcast through a couple that lives in Vermont. He had been a lifeguard in San Diego for a couple summers, and he sent us uh, the whole story. So we'll have that soon. But I just want to say it was awesome hearing from somebody that I didn't know mm-hmm. that had had heard about the podcast and from somebody else in Vermont. So yeah. if you're that couple from Vermont, <laughs> we want to hear from you too. And whoever else out there, you know, we don't know is listening. But I'm here with Jason Dallas Hensler Baldwin. And Jason... You're from my hometown, Marietta, Ohio. We went to high school together, kind of. Just barely. Uh, you were a freshman when I was a senior. And then after my senior year, we became great friends, uh, starting in a hot tub with sake. Yeah, a bottle of dessert sake and a long conversation. Actually, uh, Sean Milhone gave me that bottle really? of dessert. Really? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here in Asilo, Morocco, making the seasonals quarterly. I want you to tell me about your seasonal story. This is like a Christmas bedtime story, but told by you. Okay. Uh, it's not It's not for the children, I will say. I don't know if it's soothing enough to put somebody to bed either, or if it, but it, it does end up with hope. <laughs> okay. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Ketchikan, Alaska, that's pretty much our home base for how we got started in the seasonal lifestyle. You got there a year before I did. I tried to get there the year that you did, ended up crashing a motorcycle in a not a dramatic fashion and uh, not making it up there that year. You took two intersections and then laid it on its side. That's generous. And decided you didn't know how to drive it well enough to go across country and into Alaska. I took three turns (laughs) <laughs> and at a stop sign, fell over. <laughs> and that's pretty clear that I shouldn't go more than back to the house where I did wreck it again. Okay, so that seasonal dream of the summer of 2013 ended. Uh, and then 2014 came around, you gave it another try, and you actually made it. Yeah, I made it all the way there. I sold the motorcycle. By Smart. bought a plane ticket packed my bags and left and that was just about all the planning that i had done to go to ketchikan what was your lifestyle like that you left what was your job were you going to school did you have a big friend group the year 2013 
uh, I ended up looking after my mother in Columbus, Ohio, and going to community college. I was three years of college in and needed some general education things to just get closer to rounding out my degree. I was not in a enviable situation, but it was pretty typical of a lot of people just kind of in college, not exactly sure what's happening. And I left for Ketchikan strictly to go improve my situation, figure out something that could spark some sort of interest in me. And it immediately happened in Ketchikan. Get to Ketchikan. I don't have a job lined up, but I quickly find one at Fish from Trish on the slime line. The slime line being a fish processing line where any and all the catch that comes into the docks of Fish from Trish in Ward Cove, I get to go pluck it out of the boat out of the ice hole. Once you get onto the slime line, you're processing several different jobs on the fish processing line. I was the skinner for maybe about a ton of lingcod. It's a hard job. Somebody had to do it. It was apparently me that two weeks, and I got the nickname Bitch Hands because I was not good at slinging cod, skinning cod, And, uh, yeah, did not, uh, from Southern Ohio to Alaska to peeling the skin off the back of this really tough fish was not my forte. Smelled like fish all the time, had to take the bus in and out of town. I had to improve my situation. Like I had an experience there. It was interesting, but I knew that that was not an improvement over the situation that I had just been in. So I found out about a shore rep job, which is where you greet people coming into Ketchikan off of the cruise ships. You stand around with a sign and with a shit-eating grin, and you say, hey, hi, welcome to Ketchikan. Are you going on my tour? Yeah, you are. No, you aren't. Get the fuck out of here. You come with me. Get on this bus. I'll see you later. It's a wonderful little time because you get to experience the best five minutes that that person is going to have the entire time in Ketchikan. They come off the boats, They're excited to get off the boats. They're going on a tour. They're really excited to go on a tour, and they're going to tell you about it. And if you stand there and listen, you'll hear something interesting. Sometimes, other times, it doesn't matter because you get rid of them, and then they move on to the next person. But the pay is not very good. It can be exciting, but only because of the people that you're working with and the pace that you have to work. It's a good entry job into Ketchikan, but it's not the best job you can get in Ketchikan. It's above anything that has to do with processing fish. And so how much were you making processing fish? <laughs> I think I was making $12 an hour processing fish. Maybe 14 Right. Maybe. And how much were you making uh, being a dock rep? Uh, outside of the laundry fees that I had to do with the fish processing job, I was making 10 45, 10.75 an hour. But for a much more enjoyable situation. A way more enjoyable situation. Something that let me integrate myself into the community that I was staying in. Something that allowed for social interactions throughout my entire day. That friendships that I've built, having that job continuing to this day. I told that job when I got there that there was one thing that could possibly draw me away from it and that was landing on a commercial fishing vessel. And towards the end of that summer, I did. 
I ended up hearing about a job through you and Ryan. And I uh, quit my job. 24 hours later, got on a plane to Sitka and ended up on a power troller. Spent the first day yakking overboard. Again, kid from Southern Ohio. Doesn't really know where his sea legs are. Still doesn't. I could have sworn I packed them. (laughs) (laughs) Thought I had some Dramamine somewhere. But did not. Worked for about three weeks on a power troller. A incredible experience. The scenery was magical. Just putting along at six or eight knots, sometimes two knots, and seeing the mist-covered Alaskan shorelines and gutting fish and watching humpbacks breach beside your boat and knocking the head off of thousands of salmon. It changes you from several different points of view. You get to experience the beauty and the carnality of fishing. That was uh, the last job I had my first summer in Ketchikan. With the pay structure for uh, commercial fishermen, I know it's not an hourly thing. It's usually a percentage. What was what was the situation on that boat? I got lucky and I started off with 10%. And I was working really hard and doing a lot of things right. So I did get bumped up to 15% at the end. There were a lot of things that I couldn't handle. I blame part of it on the seasickness and the rest on my inability to connect with a captain that did not know the meaning of soap, only thought that hand sanitizer was the means of cleansing oneself. So after three weeks of fish, gut, rot, buildup, and hand sanitizer, layer after layer of it, the smell permeated my dreams, and I just could not take it anymore. And I had to, uh, I relieved myself of my duties and got dropped off in Sitka. Cut bait and get out of there. Yeah, hard. Same thing, like, same thing with the fish processing and same thing for the whole of my seasonal experience. Go try something. If it doesn't work, get the fuck out. Find something better. It's all about finding something better for yourself. Power trolling for me was not better. So I came back to Ketchikan for a little while. So the first summer of your seasonal experience ends and you want to continue with it into the winter. So what was the plan there and what happened? The plan for my winter was the plan for our winter. We were going to buy a sailboat, you, Ryan, and I, and sail it from somewhere in southern Florida to the Virgin Islands and then to Nicaragua. That looked like a great plan when we started it. When I got to Miami to start to look for boats, I found plenty of good opportunities for boats. There were cheap ones. Maybe the keel wasn't as deep as we wanted it to be, but I found this really nice one with it might it had a it had a hole in it, but it was cheap and could fit all of us. It could fit extra people if we wanted to. It could fit a uh, printer that we thought about taking and uh Then I realized that my bank account had a hole in it and that I wasn't going to be able to contribute to buying a sailboat and that I needed to find a job right now. I started going from marina to marina looking for yachty work, which I had heard was happening in late October, early November. I went from 
marina to marina up the coast of Florida until I landed in Fort Lauderdale, like the yachty capital. I did find a job. I worked a day polishing knobs on a really nice, expensive-looking wooden yacht, and I was waiting to get paid, and I realized that I wasn't going to get paid for something I thought was day labor. It was actually a two-week-long, like, it was a real job. I had to wait two weeks in order to get paid. I was just like, ah, fuck, I can't do that. So I jumped ship and started trying to hitchhike up the coast of Florida, and I was trying to make my way to the panhandle to meet you, Ryan, Sam, and your whole family to go on vacation in navarre beach in navarre beach on the panhandle and i'm hitchhiking i i'm a friendly looking guy maybe a little tall maybe i had a beard going on but i was like i will get a ride at least somewhere close and then i can figure it out from there but i did not get one person to give me even a real glance like even an opportunity that's not true one person looked at me. It was just a cop. The cop that I met came over to me in my uh, last efforts to hitchhike up the coast and said, hey, guy, what are you doing? This isn't legal. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. He goes on to say that all the hitchhikers in Florida that he's ever met are just drunks and degenerates that are trying to make it from one town to the next. And I say, wait, sir, I am a traveler. I have been traveling. I just came from Alaska and flew here to Miami. That's a long ways, isn't it? Aren't you impressed? And it is my turn to tell you that I am a traveler and that I am out to see the world. I have this little magazine here that I've made with my friends. It's called The Seasonal. And this is proof that I am a traveler. He was impressed. He was like, I'm surprised to see a real traveler out here you still can't hitchhike (laughs) but i will show you where you can sleep and i will watch out for you while you figure your shit out you dumb young person he shows me this oh this 10 out of 10 clean dumpster it is lined with tile i put up my hammock and i give you a call and say help me he showed you, as I understand it, it's a building that they keep dumpsters in. It is a three-walled structure without a roof that they keep dumpsters in. <laughs> okay. And you're sleeping in there. Absurdly clean for being a dumpster building. Clean. Relatively spotless. Almost. Leaves were the only thing. There was no trash in this dumpster spot. I don't know why it was built, but... I don't know why most things in Florida are built. So you're sleeping in a dumpster. You call me. I hook you up with the bus ticket to get you over to Navarre Beach. Yes. To party with us. Yeah. A lot of beer pong. Yeah. A lot of hanging out in the ocean. Splashing around. What happens with your winter then? Because it, it wasn't a uh, taking a sailboat to Nicaragua at that point. No, it was not. Uh, my winter ended up in Chicago with your brother Sam, and I worked in a hardware store. I had a blast hanging out with Sam as long as I did, but it was not okay. In my mind, I made it a seasonal adventure because I wanted to go to Chicago. I had wanted to go live in Chicago for a long time. Chicago in the winter is not necessarily the place you want to go to try and like have that experience. It's 
you just got to work your way harder into a situation than I knew how to do at the time. But it was an experience that I still think about to this day. Um, but I desperately wanted to get back to Ketchikan. In February, I rang up Jeff Carlson, the person that was heading up the operations at Ketchikan Outdoors, and he said that I could be the marina manager for Ketchikan Outdoors, which would mean I'd be looking after after the fleet of Zodiac boats that they use to drive around to all the little inlets around Ketchikan and take people on still possibly the best tour in Ketchikan. So that summer, I learned how to work on outboard motors, how to uh, work on wiring, how to do just about everything you can do to a Zodiac boat, a small Zodiac boat, outside of taking it into the shop and having somebody who's a real professional take apart the engine and fix it. I also was their night watchman, and I lived where I worked which my building was at one point a part of a floating logging camp. They used to have cities that would go from logging location to logging location. My shack had been the, sh- the saw sharpening station. I made a bed out of Zodiac parts and lived in the attic that was about four feet tall. Came down in the mornings, jumped in the water, rinsed myself off, played a little guitar, and then started the work day, and then went into town when there was free food and Probably paid too much for cab fare and had a wonderful summer out in the Saxman port by myself. Different situation than I had had the year before where I was moving from job to job, trying to figure out where I was going to be staying for part of the year. It was valuable in that it taught me that I can quickly learn any kind of skill that I need to to have any seasonal job that's going to present itself to me. It was a confidence builder for Sure. Just based on the title, Marina Manager, it sounds like you were probably making more that summer than you did the summer before. Yeah, absolutely. It was a 25% increase in wages. I went from making 10 something an hour to 14, 15 something an hour plus overtime. And housing. Yeah. Didn't have to pay for housing. Didn't have to pay for food because there was a lot of cream cheese salmon that the owners supplied their guests that I was able to mounge on. There was also a gas station not a few hundred yards away from where I was working, and corn dogs are cheap. So <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. So I moved 50-gallon drums of gasoline all day like a manic mole rat going from boat to boat and got jacked and ate corn dogs and made way more money than I had the previous year. Made enough money to think, I can expand my winter travels a little bit. And the opportunity was presented to me to go to a seasonal hotspot, Northern California, and trim marijuana. Trimming marijuana was this magnet for transient people to go to Northern California, Southern Oregon, and spend a month. And if you're good at it, make five to $10,000 and just go see the world. Those times have kind of decreased now, but at the time I was making $150 per pound of trim marijuana and with good marijuana and quick scissors, you could make two pounds in a day. So $300 of untaxed travel money a day adds up pretty quick. So when you ended up leaving, how much money did you have? In my account, I had about 
$8,000. I had made $6,000 that month. I'd made some friends and we took a couple of rented vans down the coast of California for about two weeks. Uh, One van split off and went to Mexico. The other van split off and went to Thailand. And we ended up in Thailand for about two months, about one and a half months with that crew. And then I spent two weeks by myself. Uh, We, I, lived on Koh Samui with the friends that I had made for that month and a half and then went up to Hua Hin to meet up with Brittany who showed me Thai New Year, all the floating lanterns and everything. And then I made my way to Bangkok where I had applied for a couple of writing positions and I found a couple of writing jobs. Well, I found one writing job and I really thought that I was going to find more writing jobs. So I just kept grinding and kept trying to find more jobs and each morning updating the fact that I wanted to continue to stay at the hostel in the little room that I'd rented until I realized that I probably wasn't going to get any more writing jobs. And somehow I had spent enough money that I wasn't comfortable staying here repeatedly without having a job. So I went to a meditation retreat for a week. Those cost about 40 bucks if you want to donate. Then I went to Chiang Mai to do a border hop to extend my visa because, damn it, I'm actually going to keep trying to do this. I get to Chiang Mai after a night bus trip, pull my bike off the train and ride around the city at like 3 o'clock in the morning. And by the time the travel agencies open up, I go in and... People are not coming back from Myanmar, which is the destination that I had chosen to do my border hop. And I panic. I don't have the time or assets to do another border hop. And my real goal is to get to Germany to see if I can start school because Germany has free state school. I'd met somebody that lived in Britain. I'm like, hey, I can go to Britain. Flights are $400. Let's do it. So I buy the ticket, take the train back to Bangkok, sell that bike, and wait in the airport for 24 hours because my visa ran out. Get on the plane, fly to Britain, get to the immigration's desk, and they say, hold up, traveler. We have (laughs) some questions for you. How much money do you have in your bank account? This much. You have that much money in your bank account? Yes, I do. Can you get more? From who? From anybody. Can you get more? All you have to do is lie to us and say yes. No, I can't get more money from anybody. Not in this world. (laughs) (laughs) And they say, well, you don't meet the first test. Let's pass you along to the second test. And by test, I mean interrogation. So they pass me on to the second interrogator who goes through my things and asks me the same questions over again. He says, low traveler, you do not pass the second test. It is time for you to go to detention. I go to interrogations detention at Heathrow Airport. I commence my 14 hours of waiting, broken up by one more interrogation. But the end result is a plane ticket to Chicago paid for by British Airways. Otherwise known as deportation. Uh, It's not deportation. It is 
not being allowed into a country. Denial of entrance. Denial of entrance. As my friend, you can say that you've had a friend that's been deported. And anybody that knows me, you can say you had a friend that's been deported. And I'll only talk about it on a podcast. I do say that. Yes. So <laughs> thank you for permission. So I get back to the United States in a daze. I don't know what the hell has happened. I had planned to be abroad for several more years at this point, going to school and learning Deutsche. It's not happening. I'm in Chicago, then I'm on a mega bus to Ohio, and then I'm in Ohio, and I'm in Ohio, and I'm in Ohio, and I'm in Ohio. And I'm still trying to think in the mentality of a seasonal, trying to make the best out of a situation. I get a, a work away in Columbus, Ohio, and I work at an Airbnb <laughs> for six months. You can go to Europe and do a work away on an alpaca farm. Yeah. Or you can go to a work away in Columbus, Ohio. In a town two hours away from where you grew up, where the friends that you grew up with are now currently living. <laughs> it is a possibility. And if you think that is a better, if you think that's better for you, go ahead and do it. At that point, it was better for me to do it. And I actually had a wonderful time and lived with a, a light bulb manufacturer and somebody who had been working with Airbnb since almost the beginning, and it was really enlightening to live with them. But I was still just off, off my ass, or maybe on my ass, in Ohio. I see another opportunity and get a quote-unquote seasonal job working with a friend at their company, a job that only happens uh, in the summer. It's a job that requires transportation, so I buy a motorcycle. And as my history with motorcycles goes, this one doesn't end up very well either. And the first day back from the job, I get off the highway and cruise in the town, and the bike overheats, and I don't have a mode of transportation anymore. I end up borrowing my friend's car, renting cars, and just paying for transportation to and from this job that is on paper very lucrative and without a car that gets any kind of decent gas mileage, not lucrative. I'm just like, what the fuck is happening? I can't fake seasonal lifestyle like this. I need to go back to catch a can. And that's when... I contacted a friend I met when I was trimming, and they had an opportunity for me. They reached out and said, I need somebody who can work a full weed season. We need to grow so much weed, and we need the people, somebody here that is an American citizen that can stay the entire season, because I have a couple of Australians who are not able to even stay in the country that long. It's not that it's illegal that they work there. It is. Like, it's not legal to work on this illegal weed farm, but they need to leave the country at some point. So I hop on that bandwagon and hop with hop in a car with you and Eric Shepner, and we take a road trip across the country at 2 o'clock in the morning after a friend's wedding. We part ways in Seattle. I go to California, you go to Ketchikan, and I spend six months on a weed farm. The weed farm was not the hardest work I'd ever done. That was back on the fishing boat. It was 16-hour days at some points when you're working in 45 degrees Celsius days. Like, it was like 110 or something like that days through most of winter. 
It was hard work. The person that I had gone there to work under turned out to be a functioning alcoholic most of the time. And uh, at some point, they turned out to be a non-functioning alcoholic. Everything started to go down. Any of the fun that we had had at any point in the summer became a sense of guilt because things weren't going right. And me and another worker decided that we needed to take over the operations. We needed to be the people that took the helm of the ship and steered it right. We mutinied this weed farm, taking the reins and implementing these tasks that we knew needed to happen and straining the details that we could out of this drunk that is just throwing everybody under the bus. And we did so, and the landowner that came back and saw that this farm was on fire gave us a little bit more trust and held on to us. On fire in a good way. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, it was this farm, we, we were just saving the crop enough so that it would still grow. Weed's not a plant that is easy to kill, but we were getting damn close. It is a weed. It just grows, but we, like, the blatant disregard for reality that was happening through this person that I had trusted enough to come out with and work under was devastating to everybody's emotions, the crop and the landowner. And he saw that two people cared enough to give it a shot, so he gave us a shot. That lasted about another month, and he said, no, this is it. I'm done with y'all. Get the fuck out of here. I'll pay you. Just wait over there. So at this point, I'm owed about about $15,000. Over the course of a four-month waiting period, I get some money. And then I get a little bit more money. And then I get a little bit more money. I know I'm entitled to the money that I earned that summer. I'm just trying to figure out when he's going to pay, when he can pay, because when the weed sells, that's when you get paid. I had an opportunity to accompany the mother of the household that I was staying with up to this person's house. They got to talking about his health because he had been ill, and that's why he wasn't on the farm. Turned to me, and I started to talk about money. And the conversation turned up to an 11 real quick from his side and the mother's side because her, her offspring were owed money as well. And this landowner did not feel that any of us deserved any of the money because of the actions that my former boss had taken. I, I watched him and her get into a screaming fight. And I'm trying to sort out the situation. And I'm looking at the landowner with just pity and contempt and confusion. The mother steps outside, and it's just me and him. I look at him like, okay, it's time for you to pay me. And he asked me, do you think you deserve to be paid? And the only thing I know at that point is, yes, I deserve to be paid for all the shit that I went through. And he says, fine, fine. Throws his hands up in the air and turns and goes to the back of the house. I know there are two things in the back of this house. There's money and guns. I don't know which one he is going to be coming back with. I measure my steps to the door, 
and I keep my eye on just the front edge of the spot that I can see where he would be coming around the corner with anything other than what's due to me, which I hope is not a bullet. At this point, what are what are the chances here? 60-40, 50-50? It's 50-50. I remember this time before he comes back about a story that he told me where he was shooting at somebody on his property. So he doesn't have an issue shooting at somebody. But I think he would have hesitancy killing somebody that other people knew on his property and they would hear the shot. And I'm just like... You think? I think that I would be mourned if he came around. But I don't really think I have an opportunity to escape. He comes around the corner... I see nothing but a stack of 20s and 50s in his hands, and he sticks $6,000 in my hand and says, bye. And I look at him, and I'm just like, uh, bye. <laughs> Turn around, walk out the door, slam it, walk out to the car. The mother's not there. I drive down the driveway. She's walking off trying to cool herself because it was a really heated exchange, and I just show her my new wad of money. She understands that it went well. It went as well as it was going to go. I uh, hop on a plane to Cancun in a couple of weeks, and then I met up with you in Colombia. That's where uh, my new year started. From this situation where you very well could have been, where there were guns involved. Yeah. What did you take away from that that you can share with us? I know that I'm never going to have to negotiate a deal like that again. I know that the only thing that I'm ever going to hear in a negotiation that doesn't go my way is no. And there are no's everywhere. It doesn't matter if I get a no now because I didn't get a final no that time. I'm looking for the yes. If it takes me 50 no's to get a yes in doing something, I will continue to do it because it's just, it gave me a sense that I know that I deserve what I want within reason, within like, no, no qualifiers. I deserve what I want and I can go and get it. The The qualifiers are what I thought before I had to have a standoff on a drug farm where I mutinied. Qualifiers don't need to exist on that. Like I can just go out and try to get what I want. If I deserve it, I'll get it. If I don't, I'll work harder to if get it. If you earn it, you'll get it. Yeah. If I earn it which I did. Thus began life after the farm. Yeah. Tell me how that's gone. Life after the farm has been uh, absolutely wonderful. Like I said, went to Cancun, had a week and a half in a paradise all to myself, met up with you and uh, nine others in Colombia, where some of us did ayahuasca. We had our minds ripped open and shoved back down our throats to some extent. My extent was more of a, you don't need to go looking for giant answers. You already have all the answers that you have. So just keep going in that direction. And I took the lessons I learned from the farm and the lessons that I learned from Pachamama and went to Ketchikan. Pachamama, the snake goddess that sometimes visits you during ayahuasca experiences. Yes. She didn't speak to me directly, but she passed a note along that I keep with me and use every single day, which is just go fucking do the thing that you want to do. So when I got the catch a can, I 
uh, I got a job as a server and immediately had cash in my hand. It was the first time I'd ever had a tipping position like that. And it was a about a, I don't know, probably a three times increase in pay than any job I'd had in Ketchikan. Jesse Goodman came to me with the idea of starting a calendar called Tough Titties, which is a play off of the extra toughs that are ubiquitous in Ketchikan. We used the idea, and about four hours after the initial, hey, let's do this, we had 12 women lined up that said, hey, we want to be a part of this. We want to show ourselves in a unique light and kind of poke fun at the traditional pinup calendar. So we did that, and now we have Tough Titties 2019 on sale, and we have XX Extra Tough Titties, which is 2019 to 2020-ish, coming to uh, catch a can dry goods near you. And it's online at toughtitties.shop. So you're working as a server. You're working on Tough Titties. Yeah. Summer's going well. Summer's going well. I'm slow rolling my fingers and toes back into the seasonals. Not the people who are working in the community, but the organization, the seasonals, contributing images, feeling like I'm being a productive member of a group that I really want to be a productive member of. I get the opportunity to start shooting product photography for one of the dispensaries in town, one of the new dispensaries in town, the Stony Moose. So I immediately have another flow of income from a passion that I've had for a lot of my life, 10 years at least, practicing, but I'd had a camera in my hands for a long time. And that's another source of income that is making me like 40 to $80 an hour at any given time. It's not like I can work a whole six-hour day doing it, but I can spend two to four hours working on a craft that I care about and getting paid well for it. And it's only because I went, hey, everybody, I'm a photographer this is what I'm doing. Look at these images and let's talk about photography. Let's talk about anything that you're passionate about. And it led to recognition for the work that I had done in the past and respect because of it. And that gave me the opportunity to see that I did have attributes that could be compensated for financially. That was a really big confidence builder as far as photography goes to be able to see real money coming in from the product photography. And even beyond that, I got paid photography gigs pretty sporadically, but I started my LLC this year and have a bank account with money in it that I earned from photography. That's huge. That feels real. And that's in eight months from meeting in that standoff that I had that like almost having nothing to having a business. <laughs> a business that makes a lot of money. Yeah. And a business that you can do remotely. Yeah. And a business that you enjoy and feel a sense of pride in. Yeah. Looking back on everything, I think there are a couple of things that stand out. The first one I want to ask you about is the idea that you can be a seasonal in a city that maybe isn't that foreign to you. You knew when you went to Chicago, you'd always wanted to live in Chicago for some amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you knew that when you were working at a workaway in Columbus, that Columbus was a place that you 
want to be. A mm-hmm. lot of your friends were there. I guess at first when we think about it, we kind of laugh. But being a seasonal in a, a kind of a common American place, it, it was a good experience for you both times. Absolutely. Because I look at a seasonal experience as a way of improving a situation. Seasonal works out because you see a far off destination and you see that there are jobs available in those places. And it's a nice mental shift, a nice easy mental shift to transport yourself into a situation where you can mold parts of yourself that you want to. But you can do that anywhere as long as you are driven to make yourself better and put in effort at the work that you are doing. The jobs in Columbus and Chicago came at a time in my life where I was still really working on figuring out how to have a personality. Like, what is this personality that I'm looking for? The jobs weren't all that enviable. The one in Chicago was the same amount of money I was making in Ketchikan, $10 an hour, my second job there. But I had done something. I had gone to Chicago and I did it. And then when I got back to Columbus, it was a mentality that kept me moving forward. It wasn't necessarily that I was getting into a better situation, but I was motating and I just kept pushing forward. I learned that if I ever feel frustrated in a situation that if I just keep moving forward, something will happen. I will be aware of the opportunity to take that. I'll be aware that I can see the opportunity coming and just grab a hold of it whenever it does. It's not necessarily that you can always build your situation or build your opportunities, but you can keep moving towards them. At the very core of it, your story is a seasonal story where you come into the lifestyle you're, you know, kind of getting your legs underneath you sometimes, literally, you're learning about yourself, the lifestyle, the area you're in. And then you kind of reached a point where things started to go wrong. And then uh, once you had the standoff after the, the mutiny and the weed farm, that was kind of rock bottom. And then you've blasted off from there. If I asked you, how would you change it? You, there's probably not any big things you would change, but what is something that a, a beginning seasonal can keep in mind to either keep out of hitting that absolute <laughs> bottom or going straight to the part where you rock it off into having your own business that makes you a lot of money and lets you travel? My anti-gun standoff position is that all the resistance that you're going to face is internal. The no's you're going to receive aren't going to come from outside. You'll get plenty of things that will, plenty of people and plenty of situations where no will be told to you, but no is never a stopping point. You just got to push through those no's. Any goal that you have is absolutely achievable when you put the effort into it. But you can't let the you can't let the internal no's 
stop you from pushing forward. When were you getting told no before? I am told no constantly in my head. I don't trust myself to do the thing right, but I have to fight that no all the time. So you're saying it's an internal battle that, you know, before you performed the weed mutiny, the person stopping you was you. Absolutely. There, it was either choices to do the wrong thing or not doing anything at all when you wanted to do something. You were the one that was holding yourself back from having this life that you view as a success. It was a baseless lack of confidence that led me to do nothing most of the time. And once I broke through the wall of realizing that I have no reason to say no to myself because I am capable in any situation, I started doing stuff. I stopped doing nothing. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm not doing nothing. That's the hurdle that I have to constantly work over is not doing nothing. Because for some reason, my base instinct is to be stagnant. Like that is how my resistance manifests itself into a banal, you aren't good enough, you can't, why would you, why are you going to do this when you can't, when you aren't going to be as good as that person. But all of that stuff doesn't matter. It just matters to keep moving and keep creating and keep doing something just so you aren't doing nothing. It's like the hoverboat. If a hoverboat turns off its engines, it's just going to sink. But if it keeps the blades going, keeps the motors going, it puffs up and moves along the water. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to stay above water and move forward. And when I do that, good things happen. Yeah, it's well put. When you, you we use the word motating, it's not a word I hear often. But it, I mean, it's a good word mm-hmm. for describing um, what you're saying. Where... Where does this go? What is what is Jason in five years, ten years, or you know, in another way, what's what's the goal for your future? Where does it go from here? If if this last summer in Ketchikan, getting more into photography, doing all these projects was the beginning, what's the trajectory and what can we expect out of you in the near and far future? I got the word motating from my favorite book, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. In that book, he talks about becoming a professional at one's art and that is my goal is to become a professional at my art and that means that I show up to work every day for the same amount of time or more and I'm there to get my work done and the closer I can get personally to constantly dedicating myself to my work I know that what I need as far as fiscal or any kind of rewards are going to show up. I'm not showing up to work to get famous or to like get rich. I'm showing up because it's the thing that drives me. And I believe that if I continue to do that, I will be taken care of because I am working towards it. The things that I deserve will come to me because I am putting in effort. Fuck you, weed guy. Well, Jason Dallas Hansler Baldwin, thanks for being on the podcast and doing Jason stuff all the time. Yeah. Thank you, Joey. Michael Ravinsky? Joseph. Joseph. Oh, yeah. I, Joey Joseph Ravinsky. Joey Joseph. <laughs> Joe J. Jonah Jameson Ravinsky. Nailed it.
Jacoby. Yeah. That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Yeah.